Welcome to Academically Speaking. This podcast is designed to provide our listeners with an opportunity to engage with subjects and topics related to student academic success. How we think and what we do is important to how we become citizens of this country and of the world. Hello, everyone. This is Academically Speaking. I'm Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean for the College of Undergraduate Studies here at the University of Central Florida. And today, as we continue to not only celebrate our faculty, but also honor extraordinary women during Women's History Month, we have with us today Dr. Sharon Whittle. Dr. Whittle joined the University of Central Florida as a lecturer in interdisciplinary studies in fall of 2016. Dr. Whittle is an interdisciplinary scholar with an eclectic academic background. We'll talk a little bit more about that. She holds a PhD in interdisciplinary studies with a concentration in philosophy and religious studies from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. She holds a Master of Arts degree in Gender and Women's Studies and a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in Music, Jazz, Piano. Her research interests include religion, gender and sexuality, science and religion, feminist theory, atheism and secularism, and interdisciplinary methodologies. Dr. Whittle is also the recipient of the UCF Research Incentive Award. Welcome, Dr. Whittle. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. And this is going to be an interesting conversation because I'm seeing some overlaps between our academic careers and our trajectories. So I'm fascinated to hear some of your thoughts. Um, And so as we think about some of the things that you have done. Tell us a little bit more about how you ventured into music and then segued from from music to women and gender studies and then into interdisciplinary studies. Well, my academic career actually didn't start until my late 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, I hadn't, from, from high school, I just went right to work. So I was a latecomer to academia. And when I started, I was, you know, very scared and hesitant, and I, I was a mature student, and I thought I had been a piano player my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've played the piano ever since I could remember, actually. I played in church, and then I started taking piano lessons, and I did in Canada what's called the Royal Conservatory of Music. Mm-hmm. That's the classical program. And so when I decided I would start, start taking some classes, I was terrified, and I thought, well, the only thing I can really do is music. I said, well, you know, um, there were sort of two narratives in my household growing up, Mm-hmm. And one narrative was you had to be really, really smart to go to university mm-hmm. or university was for people who, you know, didn't want to work and didn't want to get a real job. So these two narratives kind of held me back for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally got the courage to try a couple of courses, these, you know, I was saying, well, the only thing that I'm not really smart enough for all those other things. And so um, I thought, well, I'll try music. And so I did a classical, what would be equivalent to an AA degree there, Mm -hmm. like a classical diploma at a community college. And then I decided to go on to my um, um, uh, bachelor's degree. And so I switched over actually to to jazz piano. I'd always played by ear, playing in our Mm -hmm. church and and our family was always very musical. So we always had lots of hymns sing. So playing by ear Mm -hmm. was, 
just what I've done my whole life. And so jazz was sort of a natural transition for me. It was not very difficult at all in, in terms of, in terms of uh, conceptually. Mm-hmm. So I, I started out in music, but then you know, about the second year, two things really happened. Well, the, both were the same thing. One, I realized, number one, that in this sea of these caliber musicians, I'm not sure that I quite had what it took to be that kind of a uh, of a musician, you know, mm-hmm. performing and gigging and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing is I tip, put my toe in the water of other academic areas mm-hmm. like sociology and psychology, and I loved it, and I was really good at it. I surprised myself. So those two narratives got challenged. Mm-hmm. I had to work hard, mm-hmm. and I could actually do it. And so I decided I would finish that degree, but I would take enough electives to sort of catapult me into another direction, sort of move me into another direction. And um, primarily the, the psychology and the sociology courses that I took really, um, they tended to be uh, women studies mm-hmm. courses. And so I uh, decided to sort of try to set myself up to move into another area and ended up going into um, gender mm-hmm. and women's studies. And in that degree, I studied, um, I studied the whole um, feminist science studies. That mm-hmm. was my primary, my primary area of, of work, uh, ecological feminism. And uh, from there, I, I still wanted to pursue this whole feminist science study um, uh, area and ended up going into my PhD with a supervisor who sort of saw my work in my master's degree. And mm-hmm. even though I really didn't have a proper philosophy background, she was in the philosophy department. She took me under her wing and uh, brought me up to speed in the areas that I needed to be brought up to speed with and then uh, shepherded, me, shepherded me through my PhD in interdisciplinary studies, which is, I can't think of another place where I, I it feels like second nature to mm-hmm. me to be here so that's that was my you know that was my sort of zigzag uh journey to to where i am now so i'm i'm super fascinated because i also started out as a music major as an, as an undergrad and and with my primary instrument was voice but my secondary instrument was percussion and really found my way through a lot of different experiences as an undergrad and so one of the things that you learn along the way is that regardless of what you think you're really good at, having access to all kinds of things to learn is a wonderful experience for an undergraduate student. And and there are all these light bulbs that turn on for you that you didn't even know existed until until you have an opportunity to study these things. And so I think a lot of undergraduate students, including uh, the two of us, sort of had the opportunity to explore all of these other things um, and to really get an, an opportunity to figure out what we were really good at in addition to the thing that we thought we were good at. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's part of it is, is challenging those narratives that we, we mm-hmm. encounter, right? And then allowing ourselves to, you know, to step out into those scary areas. So I, I remember my first English course I had to take and the first essay I had to write, I was standing over the dishwasher and I was crying. I was like, I am never going to make this. 
But even amidst all of that, you know, those narratives, you're not smart enough for this, blah, blah, blah. You just put one foot in front of the other, just take one little step. And then the next thing you know, you have an essay. And then the next thing you know, you're doing okay, you know. And then, you know, the positive feedback from the professors as well, mm -hmm. you know, the support, the encouragement. And uh, I think those were really, really significant to, you know, help us, help me develop, you know, that, help me discover what it is I really feel passionate about yeah and I think it's important for undergraduates to have that mm -hmm. freedom that's what I like about our degree actually oh yeah it gives them that 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 breath to to dip their toe in into the waters of different areas and sort of figure out for themselves what's what is out there. the thing that I want to know more about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm curious because as someone who studied music I actually have a background in classical music and so was super fascinated by many of the uh 17th and 18th century composers, some 19th century composers, particularly in relationship to um, vocal music, which tended to be mostly arias and operas. Um, but I discovered in my pursuit of my music degree that I was a terrible actress. So opera was not for me <laughs> at all. So I'm curious as to how jazz became your thing. Well, it's not so much jazz itself. Mm -hmm. It's that freedom to improvise. Mm -hmm. That's what actually drew me into, into... It wasn't necessarily the music or the genre itself. It's I, I too did that whole... You know, the first one was in classical. Mm -hmm. So I did that whole, you know, you have to learn it and you have to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I always struggled with getting it right. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly when I sort of discovered that there's actually a whole... Um, there's actually a whole sphere where you're encouraged to try things mm -hmm. out, to get it wrong and figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was freedom for me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily the genre or the style. It was mm -hmm. that, well, it was that freedom to explore and to try things out and to improvise. But the other thing that I love about jazz sort of comes from my background playing in church and in hymn mm -hmm. sings or whatever. I love connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of playing with people instead right. of for people, right. that's what I love. Mm -hmm. And that's what really drew me, you know, over into that into that sphere of music. So it could be blues, it could be jazz, it could be folk, it could be country, it could mm -hmm. be gospel. Actually the but genre. That connection. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that connection and that freedom, that's what I that's what really mm -hmm. hooked me. So I'm going to segue a little bit as I think about this notion of connection and the way in which our work as college professors is not only connected to students, but also connected to communities. And, and I want to talk about that in the context of research, right, and the kind of research that you're doing. And so tell us a little bit more about your research. Well, the biggest thing that I'm focus on, focusing on right now, actually, is... Um, well, interdisciplinarity itself. So we mm -hmm. have this concept of interdisciplinarity that sort of saturates all of academia. Mm -hmm. And it's what I call the mixology version of, mm -hmm. of interdisciplinarity. And it's this idea that, you know, you add a little of this discipline and you add a little of this discipline and you shake it all up and voila, you have this lovely little academic cocktail. Mm -hmm. And that's great and that's important. But I think the real power and promise of interdisciplinarity is this idea that it is grounded in this framework of complexity. Mm -hmm. 
And complexity requires what I call an epistemology of connection. Yes. It's a way, it's not just a matter of adding things together. It's something that we produce mm -hmm. in communities of mm -hmm. communities of learners, communities of knowers, communities of, of doers, communities of thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we are isolated, individual, cognizing, cognition machines, mm -hmm. that's great. But I think at this day and age where we're seeing just the proliferation of information ever you know everywhere we go if we can't I think it's it's this ability to this interdisciplinarity this ability to learn together to to um, you know together we are more than the sum of our parts yes and I think that's the real power and promise of interdisciplinary so my research has been focusing on articulating that theoretical framework mm -hmm. clearly and moreover, in especially since COVID, where we, everything has been moved into the online mm -hmm. sphere, a lot of these skills of interdisciplinarity are developed through human interaction. Mm -hmm. So the question I've been really focusing on, how do we develop these skills, these competencies of interdisciplinarity in an environment that is online, that prohibits in many ways uh, connection, actually really moves us to, a, I would say, a very highly disembodied way of knowing. Mm -hmm. How can we facilitate the core competencies of interdisciplinarity, perspective taking, critical thinking, integration, which rely on empathy, open-mindedness, intellectual mm -hmm. courage, the things that we usually learn from interacting with each other. How can we do that in an online digital environment? So that's been the primary question I've been working on for the last, well, since COVID, mm -hmm. since I've been forced to figure it out right yeah so that's primarily what my research is is, mm -hmm. is focusing on these days mm -hmm. and, and it's a really important um, piece of work to consider because we have a lot of people who are using the term interdisciplinary in relationship to their teaching or their research and when I ask people to tell me more about what they're doing it's like, oh, well, I'm the psychologist working with the sociologist who's also working with someone in medicine, and we're doing interdisciplinary work. And I'm like, hmm, that sounds more like multidisciplinary work than interdisciplinary work. And I then say, how does that, how does that look like interdisciplinary work? What, what factors or what uh, attributes exist that make the work interdisciplinary rather than just you having this background or, or field and this other person working from another field who are coming together to solve a problem, right? And oftentimes I find myself in a group of people having to distinguish the differences between interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and transdisciplinary, right? And I'm, I'm wondering, is this something that you've encountered and how do you distinguish the differences in those things? I mean, if you were to look at the literature in interdisciplinary mm -hmm. studies, they're going to focus a lot on making sure these definitions are clear and distinct. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, I've done some, some looking myself at different journals and it depends on what field you're looking at. A lot of times these terms actually are interchangeable. They interchange them all the time. And so... I guess, you know, I could say this is what I think the specific dis, uh, de, uh, definitions are, um, but 
I think I would actually circumvent your question a little bit mm -hmm. and say that I'm not actually concerned about what the dis what the definitions are. Mm -hmm. What I'm really concerned with is how we do knowledge. Do we mm -hmm. do knowledge in a way that is life affirming, that encourages flourishing, that is pro you know health promoting to ourselves and to our environment and the earth, mm -hmm. right? And whatever that is, that's interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. So I and want to start backwards. Mm -hmm. And I want to define, I, I want to do the thing first and have the definitions follow rather than set the definitions and make and have that set our trajectory, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. So now we're going to sort of move a little bit differently and think about this notion of interdisciplinarity in the context of teaching. So tell us first, why do you like teaching? So I'm going to say something that uh, I probably shouldn't say to my dean. <laughs> <laughs> Truth be told, I don't like teaching. Okay. What I love is connecting. And okay. that's what I want to do with my students. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the person up there with all kinds of information in some position of power. Mm -hmm. What I love doing is being with people, mm -hmm. you know, my students. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to show them different ways of seeing. I want to know and see their different ways of seeing. Mm -hmm. And together, I hope that we can develop this capacity to see the world from multiple points of view. Right to utilize these points of view uh, in different ways to, you know, to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's teaching, uh, but that's certainly I, I don't like the idea. I don't like seeing myself as a teacher because right. I like to see myself as maybe a facilitator mm -hmm. in these in these communities. I don't like teaching, but I love connecting, mm -hmm. and that's what I try to do in my classes. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, and that, that makes perfect sense because, you know, now my background's in curriculum theory and so I'm always thinking about the ways in which people engage in knowledge production, knowledge construction, mm -hmm. knowledge acquisition, and, you know, what informs or builds upon the knowledge that they already have and how does that get facilitated in the context of their identities, their spaces, the places, and, and all those things that individual students see as important, right? And it's going to be different for every single person sitting in the room and how you connect to them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the ways in which you find that connection so that students can acquire and construct knowledge is going to be different. Right. And, and in, within interdisciplinary studies in particular, we don't have, it, this is, it's what we call content agnostic, meaning mm -hmm. we don't have a specific set of information that we are trying to convey. We don't have, mm -hmm. there's not a canon that they need, students need to be familiar with. What there is, there's a process that we right. are trying to show, right? And this process really only, it, it's like any other skill. It's like learning to play a, 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 an instrument. You can mm -hmm. read all the textbooks you want, but until you're sitting in the group with the people, doing the work and making the mistakes, mm -hmm. you can't, you know, it's a fully embodied experience. You, it's not, and so, um, so, so teaching in that way is, it's, you know, it's not, there's no specific set of information. So I think that's probably why I shy away from at least the term teacher, because it, it sort of harkens back to that traditional, mm -hmm. you know, the knower stance at the, at in front of the room, front of and the room, and they're just dumping knowledge yeah, into your brain. Yeah, you know, yeah. Paulo Freire's notion of the banking system, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but that makes perfect sense. So, talk to me about what you're currently teaching. 
So well, what you've been assigned to teach. <laughs> <laughs> so I do teach the cornerstone and capstone of interdisciplinary studies. So the cornerstone ideally will introduce students to the ideas around uh, interdisciplinarity. And hopefully they will be able to employ some of these ideas, these competencies, as they go throughout their degree. And then when they come back into the capstone as they're finishing their degree, the idea is then they will apply these competencies to a real-world complex problem. Interdisciplinarity is primarily designed for addressing real-world complex problems. Mm -hmm. And so in our capstone, what, what we want to do, what I want to do, I want to do two things. I want to help them be able to develop a language around their degree so they can articulate what they actually have done and what they can do. But also I make them do a project, what I call an interdisciplinary, uh, an interdisciplinary impact project, where they actually have to apply their competencies to a real-world complex problem. And the idea is that when they get out I don't know, after the degree, they get into an interview or, you know, they're telling their parents what they studied. They can say, here, look, see, this is what I can do with this degree. Mm -hmm. Here's how I can use these competencies. And they have a concrete example of, of, of what they've accomplished. So that's what I try to do in the Cornerstone class. And then um, along with that, I have had the great privilege of being able to um, develop and teach uh, courses in our diversity studies track and our diversity studies programs, um, which overlap with uh, the ones that I'm teaching generally are environmental, uh, diversity, leadership, and environmental studies. So mm -hmm. they function as courses, electives within the, the diversity studies track, but they also count uh, as electives within the environmental studies track because mm -hmm. they, they require an environmental humanities course usually, mm -hmm. and there hasn't been a whole lot of selection available to our students. So I've had the great privilege of being able to develop a few classes that have been able to um, fit, uh, meet that need. Mm -hmm. Also draws on my work in gender and women's studies that I did in my master's degree a fair bit. So I've been very happy to be able to, to um, bring that to the table. Excellent. So in talking a little bit more about our diversity studies leadership track, what kinds of things have you seen that students have been interested to know more about um, in, in this area? Well, to be very honest, uh, every everything, every topic, they are, um, the courses are full, the enrollment, it, it, the, the enrollments are uh, high, there's generally a waiting list, so it seems to me that there's a hunger for it. Um, and, you know, every topic that I cover in the course seems to be met with great, there's a lot of chatter, which to me is a, is, is a, um, is a uh, indication that it's being, uh, I don't know, but well received, but it's being received and being, mm -hmm. they're talking, they're discussing, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're debating, mm -hmm. which is precisely what we want, right? Absolutely. I, I don't, you're all perspective. Right. I don't have a set, and I say this right from the beginning, there's nothing that I say or talk about that I consider to be gospel. It's all topics on the table for us mm -hmm. to discuss. These are real world problems. These are mm -hmm. real world complex problems that we are, we have to negotiate. And so if we can't do it here, what are we doing here? Right. This because is our place. goal is to help our students to be able to engage with each other as right. citizens, right? Right. And so that means being able to see things from multiple perspectives. Right. And I have a very clear cut framework for the way I approach diversity studies. And it, 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 and it's it's simple, and it's mm -hmm. this idea that, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you. There Love your neighbor as yourself, mm -hmm. no matter who they are, no matter mm -hmm. who the other is. 
And I think when you start with that framework, I, it's, it's, I'm not sure how you can, I'm not sure what, I mean, I know it's difficult. We always, it is difficult sometimes to love our neighbor, but if that's your framework, if that's your foundation, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's the right place to start. Oh yes, absolutely. So that's a really great way to sort of engage our students in any topic, really. Yeah, I, yeah you're absolutely right. And, and, and the, it, they are all housed within the framework of interdisciplinary studies in a broader context. Mm -hmm. And so the core competencies, perspective taking, critical thinking, integration, I, those are the core competencies. I always mm -hmm. translate these for my students, how you see, how you think, how you do. Right? This is how you do knowledge in this area, but this is actually how you do good in the world. And when we are dealing with these complex problems, we, I think, are, are, are uh, encouraging and enabling our students to take these out beyond the classroom and apply them, you know, in whatever circles they find themselves, which is, I, you know, I think one of our goals is in higher education, mm -hmm. right? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me think, you know, if we start from these two really key places um, in relationship to learning anything, it makes me wonder about this notion of empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Because I would think you would have to be able to exercise some empathy in order to put those two major concepts at play in, in a classroom environment or in any environment. So based on your professional experience, do you think that as a society we, that we do have empathy? So I've thought a lot about this because I talk a lot about empathy in my courses. And I think individually we are empathetic. I don't think we can help it. I think we're mm -hmm. humans. We are that way. But I also think we are in a society that is, in my opinion, suffering or on the verge of suffering from uh, uh epidemic of disconnection mm -hmm. meaning that you know we a lot of our communications are filtered through devices we um we are i find that we're very isolated from each other politically we seem to have you know two camps and neither the twain shall meet type mm -hmm. of thing and i feel that we are sort of constantly I feel like our culture is, is just pushing us into all of our individual silos. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, I think that's becoming a bit of a barrier for, for us in terms of exercising the types of empathy that I think we actually all have. Because mm -hmm. we all know, you know, when, when you see, you know, I, the other day I was, I was coming down the highway and I saw somebody was on, on the side of the road, their car had broke down. Mm -hmm. And I watched the guy, it was, we were stopped in traffic mm -hmm. as you are. I watched the guy in front get out and take a bottle of water and hand it, pass it over to the guy who stopped, jump in his car and keep going. I mean, that, there's no political, there's no religious no, divide. Nobody there's, cared. Exactly. Any of those things about where he lived, what kind of car he no. was driving, any of those things. You're standing out here, it's hot, you're waiting for someone to help you, here's some water. Right. And that to me, I think is part of our basic humanity mm -hmm. and i so i do think that we are still empathetic but i think that given the 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 you know the the the, the things that society that our culture is is bringing on us which has been good in many many ways it's mm -hmm. also causing this sort of crisis of connection and so i think you know in terms of in terms of you know doing knowledge and and what it is that 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 we need to do. I think we need to find ways of 
this goes back to my research, how can we connect? How can we rekindle that human connection um, in a world that's being mitigated by digital technologies mm. almost all the time? It's good, it's helped us in a lot of ways, but we still need to find a way to, to be build connected. Yeah, mm. to build that embodied lived experience in this digital world. Right. So, in thinking about that, um, and in thinking about the work that you do, I also have to think about the kind of educational climate that we now have um, locally and nationally. Do you think an interdisciplinary approach to learning is important in our current climate? I would take it further and say it's essential. Mm. In fact, I think if we don't learn how to do this, I'm not sure, I mean, our society definitely is progressing in terms of science and technology, but to what end mm. if we can't figure out how to negotiate these very fundamental problems of being different, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, of being able to, to build our fundamental human experiences. You know, if we are so caught up in, in crisis and distress and war and political strife, I mean, what's the good of all the science and technology in the world if we can't right. live together? Right. And so, and interdisciplinarity, um, in my mind, in the way that I uh, advocate, is this what I call, an as I said, the mm -hmm. epistemology of connection. In mm -hmm. fact, I don't know if you know this, but I am writing a book. I just signed a book contract. Yay! And the title of the book is called Interdisciplinarity and the Art of Human Connection. Oh, wow. And these are exactly the arguments I'm making. Mm -hmm. Not only is it important, it is essential, I think, given that just the intensity of the information that we are now required to navigate and interface with. We need, mm -hmm. we have to go, we need some capacity to do that and still figure out how we can live together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so we know that, as you mentioned earlier, technology has really helped us to advance in a lot of ways and in, and in a lot of ways has improved the quality of our lives um, and to a certain extent has really changed the way that we live our lives and to include now artificial intelligence, right, which is a hot topic on our college campuses these days with the evolution of things like the chat GPT. So um, in thinking about the ways in which technology has changed our lives and particularly on college campuses, how do you think AI will change the way that we teach and learn? Well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert necessarily. Well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert at all actually in <laughs> AI. Um, but what I will say, given that I have been looking at the ways in which emerging technologies might help us uh, facilitate this project of connection in the digital age, mm -hmm. I think I think it's I think it has potential to one. I think it has potential to free us up from doing some of the tasks that will keep us separated and mm -hmm. allow us more time to, to be together, to be together, and to build mm -hmm. knowledge that accrues as we interact. Um, I think it also has the potential of providing tools for us to create much more realistic simulated experiences. Mm -hmm. And I know there's going to be a whole lot of ethical things that we're going to have to sort out when that comes. Um, but perhaps that will be a, a benefit. One of the drawbacks I see, though, is I think we risk the um, it, translating our education 
even further down the disembodied mm-hmm. path, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we seem to have this idea, this legacy idea of education as being this thing that happens up in our head and mm-hmm. only in our head. Mm-hmm. And the body is only there to the extent it can transport our brains around, right? <laughs> and I think that's a really, that's a really impoverished view of knowledge yes. and education. And so I think AI may, you know, risk, may, may come with the risk of, making it, you know, taking us further down that path. But I think it's going to be, it's going to depend on, on how we employ it, how we develop it, and how we develop our, our ethics around it, I think, which I think is all the work that I think lots of people are, are doing as we speak. So I'm confident in our community of scholars and community, and I'm confident in, in people, actually. So I think, I think we will, I, I'm optimistic that it will be a benefit. Okay, so now we are going to get into what I call the speed round version of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And this is where our viewers and listeners get to learn a little bit more about you and some of the things that you are interested in. Um, And so we're going to start out by asking a few simple questions. All right, what's your favorite color? Blue. Favorite song? Uh, my favorite song is called More, and it's by uh, a folk singer from Canada, and it's about I want more love, I want more stars, I want more of all of the things that are part of this human experience. Excellent. Uh, favorite musical artist? Uh, my favorite musical artist, uh, Benny Green. He's a pianist. Benny Green. Okay. Jazz pianist. Yes. <laughs> favorite movie? Favorite movie? I'm not a big movie person. I like documentaries. Oh, one that I saw a couple years ago that I really like was called The Great Big Farm. And it's a mm. movie about uh, the permaculture okay. movement and about, you know, the whole earth using using all everything that's natural mm-hmm. for a sustainable lifestyle. So, A favorite book? My favorite book of all time is called The Web of Life by Fritjof Capra. And it's a theory about complexity theory, and it changed my trajectory in my undergrad. It's one that had sat on my de- on the desk for a couple of months until a snowstorm, and there was nothing else to do or read. I picked it up, put it down, and then wrote a, my honors thesis about it. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Favorite author? Uh, my favorite author, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. He's a... He's a philosopher, Indian mm-hmm. philosopher. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, three words your students would use to describe you. Different. Mm-hmm. Enthusiastic, I hope. <laughs> and kind. Okay. Three words you believe your colleagues might use to describe you. Inventive. Encouraging. Mm-hmm and resourceful. Excellent. Favorite thing to do when you have free time? Play tennis. Play tennis. Was I supposed to think about that? <laughs> Who's your favorite tennis player? I, I don't know. I'm enjoying watching Coco Golf recently. Oh, yeah, she's inspiring. Yeah, she is inspiring. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. And favorite season? Spring. Spring. So hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. 
Um, we know that Florida is one of your favorite travel spots. Are there other areas that stand out for you, places that you like to go? Well, the, my favorite place that I've been to so far is Utah. Mm. I love, I spent some time hiking there and I just couldn't get enough. The landscape is so diverse, so colorful, so intriguing. I think I could spend a lot more time there. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So, um, about a couple of months ago, I started watching a show on HBO Max called If We're Being Honest with Laverne Cox. Okay. Uh, it is an interview type talk show, one-on-one -on -one conversation that she has with a variety of different people. And she always ends her interviews by asking if there's anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked. So I'm going to ask you, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked? I don't know about that, but one of the things I do like to always emphasize mm -hmm. is goes back to the work that I do here as a lecturer at UCF mm -hmm. and my work in interdisciplinary studies. I always want to emphasize this idea that I don't compartmentalize what I do in the classroom, mm -hmm. what I do in my research, and what I do in my day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. So the principles that I've adopted of interdisciplinary studies, empathy, open-mindedness, tolerance of ambiguity, uh, uh, embracing of diversity, these are all necessary for doing really good interdisciplinary work. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, and this is what I want for my life, and this is what I want for my students, more importantly, these things are good, are necessary for doing good in the world. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I don't really... I'm not so concerned with whether or not my students remember, remember a specific definition. What I really want is for them to be able to utilize these capacities in all of their areas of life mm -hmm. to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. and, right, and so I don't try to employ these just in my academic work. These are principles that I try to actually live by. And so more than anything, I hope rather than teach anybody anything, I hope I inspire people to uh, employ these values, mm -hmm. you know, in our communities, at our grocery stores, at our library, in our churches, in our community centers, and yes, in our academic work. So, yeah, you know, that is a wonderful way to sort of see the, the work that we do as scholars. And um, one of my favorite scholars, who is the dean of the law school at Iowa State uh, University, uh, Adrian Catherine Wing. Uh, would describe that as a multiplicative praxis um, and talks about the ways in which we we live every day and the identities that we carry and the things that we learn translating themselves into every space that we're in and benefiting other people along the way. Um, and um, I remember being a doctoral student reading that work that she had done and talking about this notion of multiplicative practice and thought, this is it right here. I, I don't want to be just a college professor. I want to be someone who can have an impact on a variety of different aspects of students' lives. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're describing fits so neatly into that notion. 
Um, I really appreciate the time that we've had to talk, to learn more about you, about your research, about the ways in which you facilitate learning and knowledge acquisition in your classroom. See, I didn't say teaching. <laughs> and, and, and the ways in which you, you value this notion of interdisciplinarity. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers today. This is Academically Speaking with Dr. Theodore Regina Berry. Have a great day.